Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show and welcome to 2021. My goodness, uh, that was the year. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, I guess is what we want to say about 2020. Uh, but uh, today to make sense of it all, particularly in light of the major issue that we have all faced around the world and here in Ontario, and that is COVID and its impact on our, all of our lives. And to do that, uh, two of my heroes from Twitter, uh, are going to be on the show today. Ryan Imgrund uh, initially, and then Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, who's going to talk about long-term care in the second part of the show. Uh, Ryan, now with me, is a biostatistician and consultant. And Ryan has really been one of those voices of sanity and reason on social media, as contrasted, uh, I don't want to name names here, but with some of maybe the, the talking health heads, as it were, uh, that we've been listening to on mainstream media. Um, and again, uh, by the way, just wanted to say a shout out to CIUT 89.5 FM, the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. And thank you all for contributing when we had our fundraiser. And of course, you can still contribute if you want to online this time. So Ryan, uh, welcome to the Radical Reference Show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So first of all, you describe yourself as a biostatistician, and for a lot of those out there in listener land, they'll say, what is that? So tell us, what is a biostatistician? Yeah, a biostatistician is basically someone who marries a field of math and also science. So we take a little bit of math, a little bit of science, and we join those two things up. Within the, the confines of the COVID-19, it's looking at the numbers of COVID-19 and just helping you make sense of those numbers to show what they actually mean. So let's look back at 2020. Um, from the beginning, you know, when everybody became aware of COVID, you know, around March sometime, um, and we faced the first uh, lockdown. Um, what, uh, just when you look, first of all, I mean, you, you know, frame this in terms of Canada, or, uh, but of course, primarily we're interested in what happened in Ontario. Um, what happened and, and then maybe say a few words about what should have happened. Yeah. So I think what happened at the start is, um, you know, we got the right res response. We responded like timely. We did the right thing at the very start. I don't have much criticism of what we did, at least in Ontario at the start. I think federally, we did make a few mistakes. I don't think we closed our borders in time. Um, we definitely didn't mandate masks fast enough. Um, but I think here in Ontario, the you know fact that the Thursday before um, March break, we actually shut down schools in time. We we implemented a, a fairly strong lockdown. I think we got it right in March. I don't have much criticism about what we did in March. Um, for after March, there's a lot of criticism, but I think how we started was actually fairly strong. So then moving on, it looked like we were out of the woods there, even though there were very early predictions uh, of a second wave, but it's almost as if we didn't take that to heart and um, thought, oh, well, we had those few weeks there where things seemed to be almost returning back to normal. The numbers we were seeing were down. Maybe this is the end of it. But you saw something different. What should have happened? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we started to really um, mess up quite a bit 
Um, the start of August, we started to see the reproductive value, which is how many secondary infections are linked to one primary infection. That like, value started to tick up above one following the August civic holiday. Um, and whenever that reproductive value is above one, you're starting to see growth. And we, we saw that following the August civic holiday. So this isn't as if this is something which got us by surprise in October, November, December. We knew in August these numbers were starting to like tick up and really nothing was done at that time. We just kind of said, okay, you know what, we'll let these numbers tick up and then we'll start to take some, um, you know, responses later on, whether appropriate or not, but we didn't respond in time. And I think that's the first miss that we did is in August when we didn't respond to the tick up of these actual case numbers. So what should we have done? Who did it better? Should we have locked down at that point? I mean, it would have seemed, and I know a particular small business concern, it would have seemed pretty draconian, I think, at that point. So you kind of, I mean, I'm not often empathetic with our government, but I'd have to say that when the numbers look okay, and then you're saying lockdown. So is that what we should have done? What should we have done? No. So I think what we like could have done is that we could have reduced capacity inside of stores at that time to maybe like 80%. So just a, you know, small little change, not shut down any stores. And at the exact same time too, we also could have made schools safer. We knew at around that time that through the first wave, when we shut down universities worldwide, when we moved schools to online learning, we saw that that had the biggest impact on the reproductive number. I think the other big miss at that time too, is that we also know gathering sizes were also are also linked to COVID-19 and we had social bubbles at that time. Um, and we were, you know, we didn't, I don't think actually canceled those until around October. So the fact that we let those go for really six to eight weeks, when we saw raising, uh, rising like case numbers, we didn't do anything with schools. We didn't reduce capacity inside the retail sector. I think, th I think those are some really, really big misses that we had um, in August and also September. I mean, one of the, one of the sort of bylines of, um, the government of Ontario has been from the very beginning, you know, this kind of, uh, well, we want to be, you know, take the moderate approach. We don't want to harm business too much. I know that there was incredible pushback, um, or there has been recently from small business saying, well, why are the Walmarts and the, and, you know, the, the big box stores open and, and we have to shut down. Um, uh, it, it, there seems to be some uneven handling of, of business, um, uh, and and some have even said, you know, business over people's health. So what should they have done vis-a-vis -vis big box stores, small stores, restaurants, all of that? Yeah, so I think restaurants we have seen worldwide have been linked to cases. They've been one of the biggest things linked to cases. So I think, unfortunately, in, you know, situations like that, you can't just reduce the capacity of restaurants. You do have to move them to a, like, takeout environment, um, you know, Unfortunately, there's not much else you can do on the actual restaurant front, but on the non-essential business front, um, what studies have shown worldwide is you can just reduce capacity in all those stores. What we shouldn't be doing is simply funneling um, like customers to the businesses like, you know, the grocery stores, big box stores and saying, you know what, here, shop here and then shoving them all to just one location. What that does is it increases the density inside of those stores. It also increases dwell time because now if you want hardware goods, you're going to go to one of the big box stores. Now, if you want toys, you go to one of those big box stores. Instead, 
had we had some of these smaller retails open, uh, smaller retail stores open, we could have had individuals go to a hardware store if they want hardware goods, a toy store if they want toy goods. And what we could have done with that is that we could have reduced capacity inside of those stores to just 20%. And that's what studies out of the US have shown that if you reduce capacity to like 20%, you still impact a business for sure, but you don't have that huge impact of simply moving and shuffling everyone to grocery stores and also big box stores. So, I mean, a, a, an overriding question here is the government has all along said that they they were, you know, talking to scientists, they were talking to epidemiologists, they were talking to people like you, um, and yet uh, we saw actions that didn't seem to align with what, uh, uh, you know, folk were seeing in terms of the scientific response from other jurisdictions. So, you know, who like who's the right scientist? I guess is, is you know from a layperson's point of view, you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, so somebody doesn't have it right here. How do I discern between you know who's who's uh, the real scientist? Will the real scientist please stand up? Say something about that. Yeah, so I think unfortunately, what what the the government was looking for was a smoking gun, and the same thing happened with schools as well. They're looking for a smoking gun and saying, you know what, I want direct evidence of where transmission happened inside of a grocery store. I want direct evidence of where transmission happened inside of a restaurant. And we don't have that. But at the exact same time, at that um, time when we went to shut down some of these businesses, 80% of cases had no epidemiological link. So we didn't know where what the like, primary infection was 80% of the time when we saw a secondary case. So what you can do is you can look at things like mobility data, cell phone data, see where those people with cases have actually gone to, and you can find like correlations between things like that. And what that has shown is that uh, restaurants and also grocery stores have been highly linked to cases and looking worldwide, it's been schools and it's also been gathering sizes. So I think what we really needed to do was not just look for hard evidence on something that we're not going to have hard evidence of. We need to go to alternate ways to find that evidence. Because if you think about it, we have 200 plus countries worldwide. So we have 200 plus studies going on because each country is doing something different. Some are shutting down essential businesses, some are non-essential, some are schools, some are this, some are that. And we can look through in a huge um, analysis of what impact do each of those measures have. And I think that's where we kind of failed things. We didn't look to those um, like scholarly sources of information, those like peer-reviewed studies. We just looked to say, okay, here in Ontario, I want direct evidence. Without direct evidence, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, let's talk, uh, uh, because I want to spend some time on schools for sure, where you were one of the front runners in terms of getting information out. But um, let's talk about testing, tracing, and isolating um, for a minute here. Um, one of the criticisms leveled at the way we approached COVID in 2020 was, you know, really the lack of broad scale testing um, and then tracing and uh, certainly isolating. Um, what did other jurisdictions do better? What should we have been doing? Yeah, so actually, New York State's a really good like, comparison for this. They um, have around 20 million people, so it's about 33% more than Ontario's population, but they're doing roughly six times the number of daily tests. They were running back in September, October, 200,000 tests per day, whereas we were doing 30,000 tests, many of those on asymptomatic people. So I think that was one of the you know huge misses that we had. 
back in September, October, um, was that we weren't um, like testing enough people. And at the exact same time, we also didn't put a like clamp down to that asymptomatic testing. We were doing asymptomatic testing well into September. We didn't shut that down until, you know, um, you know, we, you know, we really should have shut that down in August. Once you start to see positivity, which is the number of individuals testing positive for the COVID-19, once you start to see that increase, it means that we're seeing the number of cases increase as well. And we need to be doing more than just asymptomatic testing. We can offer it, but we should not be turning away those that are symptomatic in order to test asymptomatic people. And we had some people waiting one week for a test. And when you have people waiting one week for a test, why bother getting tested? Your symptoms are going to be gone by the time you get tested, you get your results back. And I think that was one of the things that started that early plateau and definitely kept it going for quite some time. So uh, now what should we be doing in terms of testing? And, and one of the questions I have about the testing too um, is it not only the wait time, you know, sort of, I think standardly now it's, you know, 24 to 72 hours and more like the 72 hours than the 24 often, even in downtown Toronto. Um, uh, but also the huge number of pending tests. I mean, just those, those the turnaround time. Um, and, you know, some, some have said, well, we just don't have the capacity, but, but surely then some others have said, we could have had the capacity if we we'd got our act together in time. Where do you stand on all of that? Yeah, for sure. So I think that's a... Um huge issue because first off, when somebody transmits COVID-19 to somebody else, you don't show symptoms for around five days. So we're already throwing in that, you know, five day error rate into that whole thing. Once you start to show symptoms, you may not book a test right away until your symptoms start to get worse. So maybe that takes another two days. So now we're already at seven days from when you actually had COVID-19 transmitted to you. You like book your test online. Sometimes that takes another 48 hours to actually get in to have your test. Then it's another 48 hours to actually get those results back. Now we're talking about you've gotten your results back 11 days from when you had COVID-19 transmitted to you. On average, it takes COVID-19 four days to move from one person to the next. So what the issue is, is once you find out that somebody has COVID-19, that's not a primary infection. It's probably not even a secondary infection. It is a like tertiary infection. And what we seem to be doing in those situations is that we are contacting um, like individuals who were around that tertiary infection so we can stop quaternary infections. We are doing nothing about those secondary and about those primary infections. It's almost like we have a damaged branch on a tree and we're cutting off the leaf, but we're not looking for the root cause of it. And I think that's a really um, huge thing that we have done for quite some time. And the other issue is, is that when you find more cases, you have more cases and it makes it more difficult to even forward contact tracing, let alone do any backward contact tracing. Uh, by the way, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here, if you've just tuned in, and I'm speaking to uh, Ryan Ingram, uh, uh, who is a biostatistician and really has been one of the leading lights on social media, and now on mainstream media often, uh, talking about COVID, its effects, uh, what we should have done, what we could have done, and what we should be doing. Um, so that's uh, that's what we're all about here, because there's no question that in terms of 2020, that was the major issue impacting all of our lives. Um, let's talk about schools, Ryan, because uh, 
For the longest time, you're hearing from Toronto Public Health, we're hearing from uh, those who are spokespeople for Toronto Public Health, that, oh, the schools are fine, the schools are safe, safe, safe. Um, now, just, just precursorally, as a, again, as a layperson looking from the outside in at all of this, it seemed to me weird that somehow uh, the virus could spread in universities and colleges, but wouldn't be spreading um, in our high schools and public schools. I mean, does the virus really know um, <laughs> what, what age the child is? But anyway, um, so there was that. Uh, and then of course, um, I started hearing and others heard from teachers and you know, educators, people, education workers who were you know, trying, I mean, little kids are little kids, they, you know, they take their masks off sometimes, they congregate, they, you know, um, and, and so here you are trying to kind of police all of this as well as actually impart some kind of an education and keeping kids distant in classrooms that were filling up. Um, you were one of the first to point out, and I think quite rightly how ludicrous this is or was, um, why did it take so long um, for, for the problems to shut schools down? Yeah, I think it actually goes back to what we were talking about with the retail sector earlier about that smoking gun. And at the time, I guess there was really no smoking gun. But the reason that there was no smoking gun is that we weren't actually looking for cases. We would find a case at a school and we would say, OK, that whole entire class needs to go home and you don't need to get tested because, frankly, you're going home for 14 days anyways. You're self-isolating for 14 days. And there was no encouragement to get the other people tested within that classroom. At the exact same time, we weren't asking students within the other classrooms to be tested either. So we would find one case and we'd say, well, we didn't find any other cases. So it seems to be isolated to just one student. Well, yeah, you only found one case because you were only looking for one case. But I think that really all like changed when a school in Windsor called Bagley started to, you know, found three cases and said, you know what? We've got some testing capacity right now because our the cases aren't very high. Let's see if we can test all the students at this school. Let's see if we can test the staff at the school and let's see what we can find. Lo and behold, they found 41 student cases and eight cases in staff members. And yet they started this testing off of just three cases. So they had three cases. One week later, there were 49 cases. And that was interesting because back then, Windsor was not very hard hit. They had a low number of cases. I think they were actually in the the green zone, maybe the yellow zone at the time, they were doing very, very well. And it was this, you know, these school cases where they found 50 of them. And in about three to four weeks after that, Windsor's cases have gotten out of control. And Windsor is probably one of the hardest hit places in all of Ontario right now when it comes to like cases. And I think it started with this school. It was the, you know, first like time that we found a lot of cases um, because we chose to look for them and we made it easy for people to get tested. We set up testing centers there at the school. We like, tested over the weekends. We tested on weeknights as well. We encouraged people to get tested. We asked them to get tested and they shared all those results with the public. And that was not done anywhere else in Ontario. And so why not? Um, why? I mean, surely. And, and, and again, looking at other jurisdictions, I mean, I, I tweeted months back, a Guardian article that looked at a number of jurisdictions worldwide and said schools are petri dishes, schools are, you know, contributing to the second wave. Um, uh, and yet, you know, we didn't seem to act on that. And we didn't seem to set up mobile units to test in schools. And, and again, just asymptomatic testing, because we know that 
uh, or certainly we seem to know that children are carriers more often than they, you know, uh, develop serious symptoms. Um, so why not? Yeah, so I'll actually use York Region as an example. They actually did asymptomatic testing there, but it was done the wrong way on every single front. And it was more a like piece to say, okay, well, you know what? Like Bagley found cases, they found asymptomatic um, like cases. So let's look in York Region as well. But what they did is that they opened up one high school to all six feeder schools, along with high school students at that school as well. And um, what they basically did is they had them all like tested within a, a two hour time span. Well, first off, you're not going to test all 2000 students within that like time span, but they also opened it up to online learners and families of those students as well. Now, in the end, they sort of leaked how many cases we found. Oh, look, we found three at this testing site. We found four at this testing site. And they said that those four were within students. But the actual denominator that they used were how many people they tested. Well, how many were online learners? How many were family members? They had that information, but it was not actually released. Now, looking at it from a York Region perspective, I know that in York Region, our Minister of Health lives here. Our Minister of Education lives here. I know that our um, that the head of York Region Public Health um, has some the government ties as well and maybe some ambitions as well. And I think there was some in uh, some incentives in that case to not fully release the information because we still don't have that full information. And this testing was done back three or four weeks ago. So that's where it was done wrong. And I even think in some other jurisdictions too, like Ottawa, they also did it wrong as well. They also um, like tested students there. They gave some of the results, but they didn't release one of the school's names. They said, you know what? We did asymptomatic testing at these two schools. One of the schools was this one, but the other one, we're not going to tell you. And here's what we found. And they released that on a news program there was no formal release. There was no, you know, like documentation of this data. And it's almost like they did asymptomatic testing just to humor us to say, you know what, we know we should be doing it. We'll do it, but we're not going to let you do anything with that data. What's surprising to me, and and I'm going to move along, there's so much to talk about, but what's surprising to me is that there there hasn't been an outcry really, um, uh, and listen, I'm a big union supporter, but from heads of unions about this. Um, I mean, these are workers, they're workers who are going into what are potentially dangerous situations and um, and the, the supports are not there. Um, so maybe, I mean, uh, I'll just let, kind of let that, <laughs> let that sit in the air for a minute and just say, um, yeah, we're looking ahead now into 2021. So let's do it better. Um, before I let you go, though, again, talking to Ryan Imgrand about um, Ingrand about uh, uh, COVID of 2020. He's a biostatistician, one of the front runners in terms of getting information out there on social media. Let's talk about vaccines because um, the big news is we have them. <laughs> the big news is they're there um, uh, and we need to get them out as quickly as possible. Um, and again, you've been um, you know, front and center in terms of putting the information out about how badly we're doing on this, um, how we're the last in Canada um, in terms of getting the vaccines into people's arms. And, um, and, and, and you and others have said, you know, it's gonna take us years to get herd immunity at this rate. Um, what's going on with that? Well, we have vaccines. Um, we're not using those vaccines. Right now here in Ontario, um, as of um, 
right now there's 90,000 vaccines, not even including the ones that we just received from uh, Moderna recently, but we have 90,000 Pfizer vaccines. We've only used about 25,000 of them. We shut down over Christmas time as well. And so right now we've got at least 65,000 vaccines, which we received de December 21st sitting inside of freezers. So we're talking about more than 10 days. They have been here in Ontario, not being utilized. And we know people want these vaccines. And we knew back at the start of, you know, late December, what the storage requirements are. And yet we really did nothing. And I think that's the one big travesty. And I mean, I understand with the Pfizer vaccine, it needs to be stored at negative 70 degrees Celsius. But we have, um, you know, Ontario right now per capita is doing the worst of any other province in all of Ontario, um, or sorry, in all of um, the Canada. They're the lowest in terms of the actual vaccination rate. And yet we have those vaccines. And that's what's really, really troubling to me. And clearly, I mean, to, to reach, you know, the 75 to 80% of the population vaccinated um, to get that herd immunity. I mean, we're, we're going to be needing to do like a million a month. I mean, when you look at Israel, approximately, you know, the same size, they, they were, they've been managing to get that out. They're going 24 seven in terms of vaccinating people. Um, now we'd quickly run out at that rate, if we, even with the 90,000. So there is some federal responsibility here in getting the vaccine to us. But um, but what's the hold up there? Again, that science is incontrovertible. That's it. And everybody knows it. Very, very good question. I mean, 1 million per month is 30,000 per day. If we receive 90,000 vaccines on December 21st, we should have utilized them all by December 24th. And here we are now, we haven't even done 30,000 in 11 days. And yet for us to reach a herd uh, immunity, we need 30,000 per day, not 30,000 in like, you know, two weeks. Um, and I'm worried that we're not gonna be able to ramp this up. We knew what had to be done and we're still not able to ramp it up. Even when you know the, um, the general was like, called out on this plan, we're still, and you know apologies were given, whatever else, we still only saw 5,000 vaccinations yesterday. We're not seeing a significant number of vaccinations happen, nowhere near that 30,000 per day that we actually need. Uh, do we have the capacity? I mean, this is going to be the, you know, uh, the government's response, I'm sure, on some level would be, well, we're getting it out as fast as we can. Um, are they? Well, I think with the Moderna vaccine, the fact that it can be stored at just negative 20 degrees Celsius, you can use basic standard freezers and you can have... Um, neighborhood clinics, you could have schools, you could have um, the, these other buildings as sites for this vaccine. So it should be easier, but at the exact same time too, we have been touring freezers for the last four weeks. We knew, you know, what we needed to actually run this vaccine, you know, this uh, vaccine out. We could have pre-scheduled in appointments. Um, and that worries me that if we, if we dropped the bomb on this. I think we're going to do the same thing with the Moderna vaccine as well, unless we do, unless we implement significant, significant changes before then. So the message is General Hillier, earn your 20,000 a month and get this going. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, just last words. We only have a couple of minutes left. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you, Ryan. Um, so looking ahead, what should we be doing in a, in a few minutes? Um, what needs to happen in 2021 to get on top of this? Yeah, so I think long-term care facilities, um, you know, we still haven't solved the issue with long-term care facilities, but one of the best ways to solve that issue with long-term care facilities is to vaccinate those people. Um, we need to make sure that we're vaccinating essential workers as well as fast as possible. And we need to make sure that when we get this 
Moderna vaccine, which has much better storage requirements, that the second that it lands here in Ontario, within three days, all those vaccines should be within people's arms. If we're receiving 90,000 vaccines, it's not unreasonable to expect us to be able to vaccinate 30,000 people per day. That's the only way we'll get to 1 million people per month. So if we get 90,000, you've got three days, those needles better be in arms by that time, and we better be hitting those long-term care facility residents. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to talk to Ryan Imgrund, who is a biostatistician who's been on the front uh, lines on this in terms of getting accurate information out. Um, please do follow him on Twitter. And of course, you're now seeing him on mainstream media, which is good because I'm not getting that message from mainstream media yet uh, that we really need to do better. So let's keep it up. Uh, thanks so much. Have a very happy new year, Ryan. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show, and we're continuing in this first show of 2021 to talk about the biggest issue of 2020, uh, which is COVID, of course, uh, and also looking ahead to 2021 that we're now in and what we should be doing, as well as what we did do and might have been doing. And um, we focus more generally with Ryan in the first uh, part of the show, but now I brought in um, really uh, uh, one of the, in fact, the advocate that I've noticed on social media for those who found themselves in long-term care and their families. And that's uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. And she is a long-term care specialist and researcher and has really been at the forefront of calling the government out on what they should be doing. Um, I was standing with her on uh, just a couple of days ago um, in front of tender care demonstrating. And by the way, out there in listener land, um, it will be too late for you on the radio, but um, if we can possibly get this out uh, before tomorrow, um, there is, uh, we're taping here on Friday, there is a demonstration tomorrow, January the 2nd at 11 a.m. at Tender Care as well. So do come out and support the families and of course the workers who work there. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. It's just a delight to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks for showing up and really being there to support the families. I meant a lot to them. So we're really appreciative of you. Well, I mean, it, it's really, you know, as, as a kind of lay person, um, it's just my job to amplify. And uh, and certainly it's all of our jobs to do that because it it, it truly is, uh, I would say, I would use the word criminal, what's going on I would in too. some of these long-term care places. So first of all, let's start with you. What got you involved in this sector to begin with? Uh, well, I, I, it goes back a while, but the advocacy definitely started with COVID and really realizing just you know, how badly things were being handled, the, the response that is. But when I, you know, when I first started my, uh, my graduate school, my PhD, I was at York University and I was lucky enough in my first year to do an RA ship under uh, Pat Armstrong and Pat Armstrong's easily the leading Canadian expert on long-term care. And I was on um, their uh, decade long, uh, you know, international study um, on best practices and promising practices in long-term care. So I had learned a lot at that point, but then my, particular doctoral dissertation was in family caregiving. So whether it was, you know, not necessarily specific to long-term care, but even private household family caregiving. Um, but uh, over the last year, I had 
um, a loved one enter a long-term care facility and pass, and, and, uh, and you know, in my opinion, before her time, and, and it was not a very pleasant experience. Um, and I saw firsthand the problems that existed in this sector that I had learned about in my education, but I don't think, at least for me, I, it didn't click until I saw all of the issues unfold in real time before my eyes in these homes. You know, you read about it and it, it, it stands out as terrible and you see the problems, but then when you actually see it and you live it, it takes on a different experience. And, and my grandmother had passed literally, I think two weeks before the first COVID case came here. And as soon as it, everything went, you know, everything came and we got locked down and I saw that the government effectively enacted these visitation bans under Dr. David Williams. And, and curiously, family were lumped into that categorization as non-essential. And that's what really started my advocacy, because I knew, based on my experience and how often we were in, in our own loved one's long-term care facility, because we were worried about her, her safety and well-being based on experiences, unfortunate experience we had had, um, I knew how important family were to these residents' lives in long-term care. Um, I knew the levels of care that they provided and, and how essential they were. And, and frankly, it just really bothered me that, that the, the government didn't seem to understand how important of a role that these family caregivers played in this, in this system, which has been historically understaffed, and especially over the last two decades. So I just started speaking and, and, um, and people started oddly listening and <laughs> it just kind of grew. Speaking uh, here with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, um, of course, on the Radical Reverend Show, and I'm your host, Sherry DeNovo, um, about long-term care, because, uh, you know, as we've seen, and maybe you can talk about this a bit, um, the major uh, number of deaths um, that we see in our statistics, and by the way, every one of these numbers is a human being uh, loved by a family, as you've often pointed out, doctor, um, but, uh, you know, the, it, the major uh, source of the death numbers has been long-term care across our country, um, some say as high as 80% in some instances. So um, so what, and, and uh, just to give a little bit of background too, along with yours, um, I know in political life, I was in, in politics for 12 years. I mean, this goes back a long time, uh, the understaffing. Um, and uh, we, for a long time, are calling for, you know, at least five hours per, per resident per day and uh, never approached that. Um, but then, of course, um, COVID hit. So, so maybe look at if you could uh, kind of talk about when COVID hit in long-term care in Ontario and um, what did happen and what should have happened. Yeah, it was, um, well, it was a nightmare, as everyone knows. Uh, and <laughs> we have those statistics that as of May, you know, so in the first wave, uh, long-term care residents accounted for 81% of all uh, COVID-19 related deaths in Canada, right? So we were the highest of all the OECD countries, um, but far higher than the U.S. So you know when we're beating U.S. in a, in a health-related outcome, I mean, that's that's a really bad marker for us. And we saw that just these homes were not prepared, but they should have been, right? So there was calls early in January by um, the, the Ontario Long-Term Care, the, the industry, the, the lobby groups behind the industry saying uh, to the government that that something was this was coming and we needed to prepare. And yet the government did 
nothing to proactively safeguard these homes uh, with at least at least the month that they had an advance warning from many in the long-term care sector saying, you, you have to start preparing this sector. We need help because this is going to be bad. And they didn't. And then the disaster happened and we saw that there was just massive understaffing. And then when the, the staff would become sick, then, you know, when, which happens in these outbreaks, um, we saw what happened in the military report, right? So residents were just completely malnourished, not taken care of properly. Some were dying from dehydration, um, neglect, uh, preventable injuries. It was it was horrifying. And, and keep in mind, the military only went into a handful of homes. I'm sure that that was happening in a far greater proportion of homes that we just don't know about. And of course, we would hear from families. I heard from hundreds of families over this pandemic telling me very similar experiences. But unfortunately, those just didn't make it to the public. I think the public was inundated with all of the horror stories that were emerging. But this was this was happening across Ontario and across Canada, but Ontario and Quebec seem to really get hit the hardest with this. And um, yeah. And when we look at, you know, places like BC that acted very quickly at the first outbreak, um, we see how they, we, what we could have done better, right? So BC nationalized all the homes right after the very first outbreak, um, made sure they stopped workers working from different facilities because they knew very early on, which we did as well. So, you know, shame on Dr. David Williams for not making this call earlier um, to stop workers from working at multiple facilities because it was spreading the virus across these homes. And, and that's what contributed to the wildfire, quote unquote, that Premier Ford called it, that burned across the sector. And um, they made sure that they, you know, they nationalized the home. They it gave everyone full-time permanent work at one facility hiked up all the wages to the union level rates. So increased a lot of the wages for these workers, pretty much giving them their own effectively pandemic boost, so to speak, that we started doing in the summer. Um, and made sure that they topped it, they, they shored up the staffing, made sure there was PPE, and they really focused on protecting that sector first and foremost. And we just dropped the ball here in Ontario. And they knew what BC was doing. We were telling them, do what, do what BC is doing, nothing. Yeah, I'm talking here with uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, um, a long-term care expert uh, about the situation in long-term care, which has been without a doubt the hardest hit sector uh, anywhere. Um, and, you know, again, um, this was foreseeable. Again, uh, we, we knew about this. Uh, certainly we have no excuses after the first wave and now we're into the second wave. Um, let's talk, uh, I'd like you to talk about the situation at tender care because it's it's so indicative of what's going on other places, but it's just so bad there. I mean, over 50 deaths now and counting. Yeah. Um, what, what, you know, why tender care? What, what uh, got us all focused on that particular long-term care residence? Well, tender care was, it just kind of exploded so painfully and the death count was higher than we've seen in most of these, of these outbreaks. It just, it kind of came out of nowhere, but now when you look back and you see the inspection reports and you understand um, accounts from family members that, that this was, you know, a tinderbox waiting to explode. It was just layers of privatized incompetence. We have a for-profit provider, which then, you know, uh, offshored their management to another for-profit company being extended care. And I mean, just completely negligent error, not 
training the staff on infection prevention and control, not having appropriate supplies of PPE, not training the staff on how to use PPE, and not properly cohorting residents. And a lot of that is because these are these large, very warehouse style facilities that have older design standards, which by the way, were um, banned in uh, the 90s, yet these homes, which were supposed to have upgraded their facilities, didn't. So we're, you know, there, there's definitely culpability here on, on many levels. The government should have been making sure that these homes actually upgraded these facilities over the last 20 years that they had to do it, and they didn't, uh, because evidently the money spent or would that would be required to upgrade those homes was better served in you know shareholders' dividends and, and executive compensation is what many are saying. Because you know another uh, study just came out that these top three big for-profit chains <laughs> doling out 170 million, I believe, 171 million to their shareholders over the first 10 months of this pandemic, while also receiving 138 and a half million through provincial uh, pandemic pay <laughs> grants. I, it's just outstanding, the level of uh, negligence. It's just layers of negligence. And let's uh, we should we should uh, speak in this conversation about long term care in Ontario. Um, uh, the fact that the government brought in a quite extraordinary bill that's aimed at making it much more difficult for families to sue. Um, both themselves and uh, the owners of long-term care. It's been um, it's been posted many times on social media that you know some yeah. of the, lo- the owners of long-term care um, are in fact members of the Conservative Party, including Mike Harris, um, former Premier. Um, so I mean, there's a tie there that makes it all um, look very suspicious. Uh, but um, but uh, as I've been saying, um, you can still sue, and I hope that I hope families are are, are doing that because. Because you just the bar is a little yeah. higher to prove it, but I hope yeah. they are. Any any intel on that, uh, Doctor? Yeah, I as soon as that bill, you know, there were rumblings of that bill coming out, and um, we had I, I held an event with a long term care lawyer and some families from Orchard Villa about exactly this bill, Bill 218. I mean, it just really shows you the priorities of this government. So you had ten months to prepare this sector ahead of the second wave. You didn't. But in under a month, right? I mean, this bill passed in lightning speed. It was first tabled on October 20th. It became law on November 16th. So you were able in under a month to create a law that indemnified both the government, because keep in mind, the government was also facing lawsuits for their failure to, their duty to, their failure and their duty to breach, uh, sorry, their breach of duty to protect long-term care residents. So another uh, lawsuit was actually against the Ford government, in addition to the dozens of lawsuits that are now levied at various often for-profit providers that have failed this test. I mean, they failed in the first wave, they failed again in the second wave, and instead of holding these homes accountable, you create a law that effectively um, legislates negligence. So now, for the first time, you have to prove gross negligence. So long-term care homes can't be held liable if a resident contracts COVID, if they made a quote unquote, good faith effort to follow guidelines. And here's the best part, whether an honest effort, um, whether it was an honest effort, reasonable or not, I, I just can't get over that. So now they have to prove gross negligence, which, you know, this is gonna be setting precedent. This has never happened. This is changing the rules of the game in the middle of the game. So these lawyers are not happy, but they're definitely 
not it's not preventing them from suing. It's just making their life uh, it's making their work a little bit harder, unfortunately, because this is going to be um, all new precedent setting in terms of what is gross negligence. It's going to be very interesting to see what these courts decide upon what, once these families finally get their court dates. One of the, uh, well, there have been many um, very graphic descriptions of what's going on inside the homes. And as you've said at the outset, you know, one of the travesties is that families, uh, they're near and dear to those that are in them, um, have a real difficult, really difficult time even seeing them. Um, so when the army went in, of course, there were, as you pointed out, lots of examples of gross negligence, it seemed. Um, and now the, part of the problem is, uh, is the eyes on the situation. It's just getting people in there that will help. And I know in tender care, you know, the the hospital went in as it has in other instances um, to provide uh, the staff that's necessary, but, you know, they have their own issues back um, in their own facilities yeah. and can't do it forever. So when we're looking ahead um, and again, uh, talking about long-term care here and uh, the, the, the horror of it, quite frankly, in our province, um, when we're looking ahead, um, what what needs to happen to to really save lives here because people are still dying? Well, it's very clear, and we've been very um, very clear in these demands with the government for quite some time, and not just us, right? So keep in mind they hired they, they hired well effectively they chose who the long term care commissioners were. They had the long term care commission, which has now since put out two interim reports that they published early because of the urgency that these you know, recommendations needed to be followed. And, and Minister Fullerton has yet to follow these recommendations, things like implementing dedicated independent infection prevention and control leads at each home. This is something Quebec has been doing for months now. Uh, that could have effectively prevented what happened at tender care because those were all preventable IPAC errors that should never have happened. That was clearly the result of negligence and improper oversight. They, they need to implement a actual standardized provincial crisis response because there isn't one right now. What happens is time after time, we hear of how bad it gets, um, a home gets, usually through family or through the media, and then the local hospital is sent in to assist. But they And they were able to do that in the first wave, sure. They don't have the supports to do that right now. Everyone is inundated with the levels of community transmission right now. So that's why we need the CAF back in, we need the military, and we need Red Cross teams to supplement. And not just Red Cross, because I'm starting to see a, you know, the reticence to bring in the military and rely on Red Cross, but Red Cross teams, as we have seen, cannot provide the actual hands-on care because they're not nursing teams. We have the nurses that are with the CAF teams. We need both. We need all hands on deck. And the government needs to immediately start an, an effective staffing blitz, not a couple little programs here and there, which they've been doing, which have not been helping. They need to do something like Quebec did back in June, which is targeting you know, a 10,000 scale um, workforce blitz where they effectively paid for the training, started the salary at $50,000 and had tens of thousands of people apply. Because it's not that people will not go into this sector and work, but people are making the very rational decision right now based on the working conditions in these homes right now. Forget it, right? Because we have a whole lot of PSWs, not a lot of nurses. Nurses have been, you know, in, in a shortage for a long time. 
because you can pay PSWs less than you can pay nurses. And this is all part of the profit making process. Um, so, you know, th th these poor PSWs are working sometimes double, triple shifts. Uh, they lost, you know, some reports by the SEIU, a third of their workforce in the, in the first wave. So we were going into the second wave with losing a whole lot of the PSW's workforce as it was. And the government knew that because there were calls from RNAO, from SEIU, from Unifor, from all the unions telling them you'd need to engage in an immediate targeting staff blitz for PSWs and nurses. They didn't do it. Um, they also need priority access to testing and vaccination. So we had a lot of these exploding outbreaks occur because the, the results didn't come in fast enough for them to properly isolate the sick residents. And that was happening, what, about a, you know, a month to two months ago. They've started to get a little better at that. But then the vaccine rollout is now a disaster. So now, you know, I was in the town hall with the tender care families a few days ago, and families were asking, are the workers being vaccinated? And they weren't being provided a clear answer. We were only told that it's difficult to vaccinate during an outbreak. What, what does that mean? Why aren't they sending vaccination teams into these homes to vaccinate these workers? I mean, this is ridiculous. So our vaccination program and our rollout is not working properly. And General Hillier needs to, to get on that. And then also um, making sure that they have avenues to transfer COVID positive residents out of these older rooms to be able to get rid of these ward rooms. And, and there was one mini attempt to do that on a, a couple of days ago. The Minister Fullerton put out a press release that they have, a, you know, created a specialized care center attached to North York General Hospital in for the purposes of tender care to help indeed just do that, remove some of these residents in these ward rooms and take them to this 30 person facility. But give me a break. One 30 person facility is not going to make a difference when you have a long term care work, you know, resident population of about 76,000. I mean, it's not enough. So, and the most important thing they need to do, I say that the most important for last is to legislate the care standard now. So, you know, they did this press conference, giving themselves all pats on the back about how they're going to get to the four hour daily care standard in five years, which is useless. And, um, and frankly, I don't have much faith that that's actually going to happen. It does nothing to help the residents right now. You could help the residents right now very easily by simply passing the legislation that is before this government. They have the Time to Care Act bill, which is passed at second reading. It was tabled by Teresa Armstrong. This bill is ready to go. All they need to do is pass it through royal assent and it will be law. And then it will force these majority for-profit owners to actually have to hire the staff required to get to that care standard because CCPA has put out estimates that you can do that. You can do that right now. They have the money to do this. It just requires a 51% increase in the total number of caregiving hours that is at play right now in these homes. So it's doable. Our government is sitting on what, 12 billion and they just need 1.6 billion to do this. And that's assuming they actually are paying for it all, which they wouldn't have to, right? Because we have the highest share of for-profit owners in Ontario, in Canada. So they would be paying to hire these workers. So it's not even like the government would have to put this entire bill. I don't understand why they're not doing this. Uh, it's a good question. We're talking to uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos uh, on the Radical Reverend show that you're listening to. Uh, and of course, we're talking about the disaster, which is long-term care in our province, and the number of deaths that have come out of this. 
Um, and uh, again, just to echo what you're saying, I don't understand why the army isn't there as we speak. Yeah. Um, I think they're just frightened of what they'll find, quite frankly. You mentioned uh, Dr. Fullerton. Uh, she is a doctor. <laughs> she is the head of the minister in, in charge of this sector. Um, and uh, she comes out with statistics every so often on social media, not a lot else. Um, we just saw... Uh, a minister, uh, the minister of finance, usually the one of the most senior positions in the government, uh, resign over a trip to St. Bart's. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so he should have, most probably. But here we're, we, we're talking about a ministry that's responsible for thousands of deaths. And, yeah. um, and there has been a call for her resignation. And by the way, out there in Twitter sphere, know your power, keep it going, because yes. whether they respond or not, um, uh, the uh, politicians pay attention. So does mainstream media. The more we can get this out in mainstream media, uh, the quicker we can see something happen. But then, of course, they put somebody else in her place. Um, so it really comes back to the administration generally. What, you know, Dr. Stamil <laughs> Dr. Stamatopoulos, what should Dr. Fullerton be doing right now? She needs to roll up her sleeves and get to these homes. What really bothers me about Minister Fullerton is that she has the audacity to, you know, as in particular, what really bothered me the day that we were out protesting at Tender Care, she was giving a CP24 interview about how everything is stable. Don't worry. Meanwhile, we're there actually with the families, hearing the accounts of individuals inside the home, calling 911 just to be fed, banging on the walls so people can hear them and come to help them. And you have the audacity to say you've just had a phone call with somebody and everything is fine. Yet she has never, as far as I know, and she was also asked this question in a radio interview. She couldn't answer when the last time she stepped into a long-term care home is because she doesn't go. She is the most out of touch minister that has ever existed in my, in my books. And it is embarrassing and shameful that she has not resigned. And yet, yes, this gentleman just resigned, yet she hasn't. And she, quite frankly, has earned that resignation in my books far more than anyone that I can think of over the course of this pandemic when it comes to failing their portfolio. She has woefully failed to protect these seniors. She continues to fail. She doesn't set foot in these homes. She doesn't actually see for herself if these homes are stable. She takes the word from who? That actor is telling her that everything's fine. You're just taking the word. You're, you're phoning it in. Give me a break. That is ridiculous that somebody making, you know, what over $200,000 a year can't even step foot into these homes to see for herself what's going on. I have a problem with that. And a lot of Ontarians do as well. And uh, thank you so much for mentioning the staff as well. I mean, PSWs are underpaid, risking their lives, going into long-term care, um, completely understaffed. Um, I, I just, I can't even imagine what that life looks like as well. So it's not... It's not only the family members who are in there, it's also the workers who are in there. And, uh, and workers uh, have died. And workers yes, have died. Absolutely and, absolutely. and workers' family members have died because they go home and then unfortunately they get their loved ones sick as well. It, it goes both ways. They both brought in the illness inadvertently and then they have taken it home. And we have done nothing to protect them. Many of these workers don't even have paid sick leave, which is why some of them, because they knew if they didn't go to work, who would be there to help these seniors? 
So some of them unfortunately had to make the decision to go in both out of the goodness of their heart because they wanted to help, but also because they couldn't pay their bills without that paycheck. Because we don't have paid sick leave and most of these workers aren't in, you know, permanent unionized, properly paid full-time jobs. And this government knows that. It has profited off these racialized and gendered workforces because this is women and this is women of color, many of which are new to Canada that are doing this work for a pittance of what they deserve. Uh, absolutely. And uh, so I, I'm just going to leave you listeners with uh, the best testimony that you're going to hear on this issue anywhere. And that's uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is a long-term care expert and who's more than that has been a voice for the voiceless in long-term care on social media. So if you don't follow her, please do follow her on a Twitter because, uh, and now she's getting some mainstream media time, but quite frankly, not nearly enough, not nearly enough is getting out about the situation, which is a humanitarian crisis. And and it's happening in our city and it's happening in our province. So thank you so much, doctor, and keep on keeping on. I will. Thank you so much. You too. Mm-hmm.